Welcome to the Election Ride Home for Monday, December 9th, 2019. I'm your host, Chris Higgins, with a summary of election news. Today, Buttigieg reveals part of his work for McKinsey, Sanders releases a plan to improve broadband access nationwide, the impeachment update, Volcker has died and let's remember what he stood for, and Williamson falsely claims that Trump pardoned Charles Manson. Here's what you missed today from the campaign trail. First up today, let's talk about an ongoing question for Mayor Pete Buttigieg. The question, put simply, is what exactly did he do during the three years he worked as a consultant for McKinsey? Buttigieg has said he is bound by a non-disclosure agreement and therefore can't give out specifics about that work. He has asked McKinsey to release him from that NDA, which would in turn protect him from a variety of lawsuits he might face if he just decided to break it on his own. Other campaigns, and in some cases voters themselves, have asked Buttigieg to address the issue. Reading from an article in Vox by Emily Stewart and Ellen Nilsson, which begins with a statement by Buttigieg, quote, The bind on me right now is I believe in keeping your word, and I signed a legal document about client names. I've been calling on McKinsey to release me from that so that client list can go out, he said, adding, Now, it's not like I was running the place, but I think the American people deserve to know. On Friday evening, amid mounting pressure to provide more details about his McKinsey work, Buttigieg released a statement reiterating the limits of the NDA that provided some information about his work, though vague and incomplete. The bulk of my work on these teams consisted of doing mathematical analysis, conducting research, and preparing presentations. I never worked on a project inconsistent with my values. And if asked to do so, I would have left the firm rather than participate, he wrote. He then listed various project descriptions to the best of my recollection and again asked McKinsey to release him from the agreement, end quote. That statement from Buttigieg is in the show notes, and it's a public article on Medium. It details the location and general nature of his work from 2007 to 2010, but because of the NDA, he doesn't list any company names. He also offers a mild hedge at the end, saying that the list is complete as far as he can remember. This has still not been enough for some critics. Reading again from Vox, quote, The pressure on Buttigieg continues to build. On Thursday, the New York Times editorial board called for him to give voters a more complete account of his time at the company, and declared his silence on the issue an untenable situation. The board noted that President Donald Trump has been extremely secretive about his own business dealings, and Buttigieg, running as an alternative to him, should do better. He also has a short resume, so three years is a lot. He must find a way to give voters a more complete accounting of his time at the company, the Times wrote, end quote. So I will keep you posted on this one. It has become a proxy fight for issues around candidates' corporate ties and how campaign finance works and previous clients for multiple people and so on. There's been some specific beef with Senator Warren's campaign in there as well, so expect this story to come up again. Next up, Senator Bernie Sanders released a plan on Friday called High Speed Internet for All. And I'll give you one guess to figure out what it would do. Yep, you got it. So how would it work? For one thing, Sanders would treat internet service providers, also called ISPs, as utilities. 
This is a long-standing issue that I've written a lot about over the years, so I'll toss some of those links into the show notes. Long story short, if you treat ISPs like you treat power companies and water companies, all of a sudden you can regulate the heck out of them. This can have the effect of bringing service to rural areas, which current ISPs can ignore, because there's no rule saying they must serve them. And yeah, it's expensive to get big data cables out into some rural areas. But way beyond that, Sanders calls on communities themselves to build and operate their own ISPs. Basically, make a citywide or region-wide network, operate it at a low cost, and serve everybody in your region. This includes public housing, which would have to offer free broadband to residents under the plan. To help with this, Sanders would offer grants to solve the so-called last-mile problem, where the big internet pipes stop just short of the areas you need to serve. By building that infrastructure and having it be publicly owned, Sanders would sidestep a ton of the existing ISP power over those last-mile lines. Or he can just classify the ISPs themselves as utilities and demand to use their lines, which is technically possible as well. Beyond all this, Sanders would break up a bunch of the existing monopolies and merged companies that mean many people have only one choice for broadband in their area. So that company offering that choice can offer whatever price and level of quality it deems appropriate. Under this plan, that would stop. One other key component is providing broadband for people with disabilities and actually enforcing laws requiring websites and government services to make content available in alternate forms. For instance, adding closed captions to videos and being able to take video calls using sign language. Now, this is a topic close to my heart, and again, check the show notes for a short documentary that I filmed on this very topic released this year. All right, now, as always, how much will this cost and how will the candidate pay for it? Well, Sanders says the biggest cost is a $150 billion grant program as part of the Green New Deal plan he has already proposed. While the new policy document itself doesn't lay out the entire cost and revenue picture, I presume the existing tax proposals to fund the Green New Deal are themselves the funding plan for this proposal. It's also worth pointing out that other candidates, including Biden, Buttigieg, and Warren, have all released plans related to improving rural broadband access. The Sanders plan differs primarily in scope. It is much bigger. And in its focus on public ownership of local ISPs. The plan and lots of links about it are in the show notes. Hiring is challenging, and it used to be hard. Multiple job sites, stacks of resumes, a confusing review process. But today, hiring can be easy, and you only have to go to one place to get it done. ZipRecruiter. In fact, go to ZipRecruiter.com begin. ZipRecruiter sends your job to over 100 of the web's leading job boards, and they don't stop there. With their powerful matching technology, ZipRecruiter scans thousands of resumes to find people with the right experience and invites them to apply to your job. As applications come in, ZipRecruiter analyzes each one and spotlights the top candidates so you cannot miss a great match. ZipRecruiter is so effective that four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter 
ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate through the site within the first day. Right now, listeners here can try ZipRecruiter for free at this exclusive web address, ZipRecruiter.com slash begin. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash B-E-G-I-N. ZipRecruiter.com slash begin. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. And now the impeachment news in about five minutes or so. First up, a correction to last week's Thursday segment in which I talked about the four law professors who testified before Congress. Thank you to Professor Howard Bunsis, a listener who wrote in to point out that I didn't properly characterize what Professor Jonathan Turley said in his testimony. Turley was the professor called by Republican committee members. Today, I want to give you a more complete sense of what he said and how it strongly contradicted the views of the other three professors. Here's a quote from an op-ed Turley wrote for The Hill after his testimony, which gets at the heart of his argument. Quote, My objection is not that you cannot impeach Trump for abuse of power, but that this record is comparably thin compared to past impeachments and contains conflicts, contradictions, and gaps, including various witnesses not subpoenaed. I suggested that Democrats drop the arbitrary schedule of a vote by the end of December and complete their case and this record before voting on any articles of impeachment. In my view, they have not proven abuse of power in this incomplete record. End quote. And one more. Quote, I do not believe a crime has been proven over the Ukraine controversy, though I said such crimes might be proven with a more thorough investigation. End quote. So to summarize, he's saying, I don't see the case there. But on Thursday, I characterized his testimony as being all about, you know, let the courts do their work, but maybe implied that he did see a case there. Anyway, moving on. Let's talk about what happened today. In the House Judiciary Committee, proceedings have shifted. The topic is now reviewing all the existing evidence as a stepping stone toward writing or maybe revising articles of impeachment. Today, testimony got off to a rocky start. A protester interrupted the proceedings just a few minutes in and was escorted from the room, shouting all the way. Meanwhile, Republican committee members continued their strategy of bringing motions and arguing points of procedure within the committee. This slowed things down, and it caused Chairman Jerry Nadler to spend a good bit of time on procedural stuff, and in some cases calling votes, before the actual witnesses began speaking. They were congressional lawyers Barry Burke, Steve Castor, and Daniel Goldman. The trio were there to sum up evidence and arguments from the previous hearings. Burke and Goldman made the case for the Democrats, while Castor spoke for Republicans. Reading from a live blog by Peter Baker for the New York Times, quote, The evidence is overwhelming, said Barry H. Burke, the lawyer, repeating the phrase to emphasize the point to counter, in advance, Republican arguments that the impeachment inquiry has been rushed and inadequate. The facts assembled in recent weeks were uncontradicted and cannot be disputed, he added, as he played video clips from witnesses who testified last month before the House Intelligence Committee. End quote. 
Okay, and let's read once more from the Times. This time it's about the testimony of Castor, the lawyer for the Republican side. Quote, This unfair process reflects the degree to which Democrats are obsessed with impeaching President Trump by any means necessary, Mr. Castor told lawmakers. The Democrats went searching for a set of facts on which to impeach the president. The Emoluments Clause, the president's business and financial records, the Mueller report, and allegations of obstruction there before settling on Ukraine. End quote. Again, as I mentioned last week, a part of this argument at present boils down to Democrats saying that the facts are the main thing, while Republicans are saying the process is the main thing. And yes, there is deep disagreement on what the facts even are. And yeah, there is also disagreement about the process as well. So, you know, this continues to be messy. Okay, wrapping this one up, I will have more on that testimony tomorrow. The big question for now is whether Democrats will include an article of impeachment related to obstruction of justice in the Russia affair, aka the findings of the Mueller report. Listening to Chairman Nadler today, it sure sounds like they will, but, you know, never assume what people in Congress are going to do until they do it. Today, Paul Volcker died at the age of 92. Now, he was not running for office and he was not involved in this election directly, but I want to mention here who he was and how his views have echoes in this election today. Reading here from a brief article by Joanna Walters, writing for The Guardian, quote, In 2018, he published a memoir titled Keeping at It, The Quest for Sound Money and Good Government, and expressed concern about the direction of the federal government and the loss of respect for it. The central issue is we're developing into a plutocracy, he told the New York Times in October 2018. We've got an enormous number of enormously rich people that have convinced themselves that they're rich because they're smart and constructive, and they don't like government, and they don't like to pay taxes. In 2009, Volcker began serving as a key financial advisor to President Barack Obama and faced a maelstrom of financial turmoil, government bailouts, and fallout from the deepest recession since the 1930s Great Depression. In working to help the U.S. economy recover from the 2008 crisis, he proposed what became known as the Volcker Rule that restricted banks from making high-risk investments with depositors' cash. Since Donald Trump, who favors fewer regulations, became president in 2017, the rule has been under review. End quote. Volcker was chair of the Federal Reserve from 1979 through 1987. In other words, he was appointed by the Democrat Jimmy Carter and reappointed by Republican Ronald Reagan. While Volcker's policies are far too complex to get into within this podcast, I think it's important to note that his message about rich folks and tax avoidance and plutocracy is strongly related to many of the policies and arguments we hear from Democrats in this primary. And to a great extent, the senators and the other long-serving high-level folks in this race have enough history with Volcker that they will likely react to his passing. And last up today, a cautionary tale about a politician getting some facts wrong. It's not the first time for any of these folks, and it probably won't be the last. This morning, author Marianne Williamson wrote a series of tweets falsely saying that President Donald Trump had posthumously pardoned Charles Manson. 
If you're not familiar with Manson, he was a cult leader who led his followers to commit a series of murders. He was convicted and sentenced to life in prison starting in 1971. He died in prison in 2017. And perhaps most important for today's story, he has not been pardoned by anybody. Reading from an article by Tim Elfrink in the Washington Post, which starts with a tweet by Williamson, quote, There is something deeply sinister about Trump pardoning Charles Manson, even posthumously, the self-help guru and Democratic presidential candidate tweeted to her 2.8 million followers, dog whistles of the very worst possible kind. Criticizing the president for pardoning a race war spouting killer wouldn't exactly qualify as a hot take for the author of A Politics of Love, except that it never happened. In fact, since the murderous cult leader who died in 2017 was convicted of California state criminal charges, Trump couldn't issue him a pardon even if he wanted to. Williamson later posted a follow-up tweet apologizing and noting that she was glad to have been wrong but she soon deleted both the original tweet and the apology, end quote. So let this be a lesson to all of us about misinformation. While I don't know where Williamson got this incorrect info, many of us who spend a lot of time online run into stuff like this that seems like it might be true, and we often don't do the homework before we react to it. There is a theory that Williamson read a satirical article claiming that there had been a pardon, but the satire was fairly subtle and only really exposed itself in the last few lines. So here's my request. Please do some research before you post stuff like this, whether you're a presidential candidate or not. (laughs) Otherwise, you might find some dude on a podcast talking about your mistake. Well, that is it for one more episode of the Election Ride Home. I have been your host, Chris Higgins. You can always find me on Twitter, at Chris Higgins. All right, happy Monday, everyone, and welcome to another chilly week as the campaign continues to heat up. I am grateful for all the folks who found this show through my interview on the Words Matter podcast. If you haven't heard that interview, I put a link to it at the top of today's show notes. If you have already heard that, and that's why you're here, thanks for showing up, and I hope you enjoy the show. As always, thanks for listening, and I will talk to y'all tomorrow. Tomorrow.